ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. And as you turn there, we are down to the last two messages in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as you remember, we got to the end and then came back to pick up uh, some that we had skipped over so that we would have the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And uh, appropriately, uh, as we end the book this week and next week, we are going to be talking about the end times, and Jesus' teaching on that. Let's bow together. Lord, as we bow before you, we have an awesome text in front of us. First of all, because it's your word. words of the living God to his people, but further because you are telling us about events that will take place as this world comes to its end as Jesus comes, and those are difficult to understand, we pray that you would give us understanding that comes from your spirit, even in this passage, you promise comfort from your spirit, and so we plead for that, and we look to you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to do something a little different today, because we do have a lengthy passage, and so rather than read it all at once at the beginning, I'm going to read you some fairly large chunks and talk about them, and then we will work our way through this passage. But I, I, I want to, in, in one sense, right up front, um, and I hate to do this at the beginning of a sermon, but I want to lower your expectations. <laughs> you know, if you think that at the end of today you're going to come away with all of your questions answered about uh, the end times, that's the expectation I want to lower. Uh, that is not going to be the case. Uh, this passage uh, tells us a, a great number of things, and we will emphasize what, in my view, Jesus emphasized. And that's the application of these things. So much, not so much uh, the detail, though he did give a number of details. When it comes to the end times, and uh, specifically to the Olivet Discourse, which uh, that's what this passage is sometimes called, and there are parallel passages. And by the way, one, another reason I'm lowering that expectation is because people have written whole books just on this discourse, preached whole series of sermons just on this discourse. So uh, to presume that we can uh, cover it in its detail in 30 minutes is impossible. Uh, but it's somewhat controversial. There's dozens of views. There are all kinds of millennial views. 
uh, when the millennium will be, uh, when Jesus will come relating to the millennium. Will there be a millennium? You have uh, post-millennialism, amillennialism, premillennialism. I tend to tell folks, because I have some difficulties with each of those views, and so my view is, uh, at least at this point, generally I'm one of two millennial views, uh, pan-millennialism. I think it'll all pan out in the end, one way or the other. Or sometimes I say, well, I'm I'm pro-millennial. If there's going to be a millennium, I'm all for it. (laughs) And then there's views on the tribulation, mid-tribulation. And and what that has to do is when Christians will be removed from the tribulation. Will it be before the tribulation, pre-trib, mid-trib, halfway through, post-tribulation? will go through the tribulation and then be removed. And, uh, and then there are all kinds of variations with all of those in between and then dozens of other details. So you can see to try to cut through that. And so we are going to look at this passage and see what Jesus said, what we can clearly know. Now, even in terms of this discourse, there are at least three ways to look at at it. One is that there are those that think that everything in Mark 13 took place already back in 70 A.D. That will make more sense in a little while. Uh, In 70 A.D., that was when uh, Jerusalem was invaded, destroyed, and the temple was destroyed. And some believe that everything he says here was fulfilled at that point. There are others that believe that everything that he says here will be fulfilled at some future point when Jesus comes. And so none of it was fulfilled in 70 A.D., and then there are some that think part of this passage was fulfilled in 70 A.D., and part of it is looking ahead to when Jesus comes. And it's kind of like looking at a mountain range. If you're at a distance and you look at the mountain range, it looks like it's, it's one mountain. And then you get up close to it and you realize there is uh, the first mountain you come to. And there may be a great distance between it and the next peak that you see. And there may be a big valley in between. But when you look at it from a distance, it kind of all comes this way. So that's kind of how we see it. And when it comes to this passage, Jesus is kind of presenting it like that, even though there is uh, potentially this distance of time in between. And I will tell you up front, that would be my view of this passage. In other words, some of the things that he's talking about are going to happen uh, before very long, within about 40 years of when he said this. 
and other things are yet in the future. So at least 2,000 years later. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the passage. And if you will uh, hang in there in terms of trying to focus on what he's saying and getting the picture, uh, I, I think we will come away with some, what I believe are very important applications. And for me, they provide great comfort. You might say, well, so far all you've done is convinced us that you're pretty confused about all this, so how are we going to come away any better off? Well, because the applications, I believe, are very clear. And I'm convinced that's what he wanted us to come away from, his teachings about the end times with. What's it mean for us in our life now? It's not just a curiosity so that we can sit around and, and figure out the moment when Jesus will return. But there is a real reason why he says, I'm coming back. So look, first of all, at uh, what he's talking about uh, in terms of what will take place soon. You'll go through a great tribulation, I believe, he emphasizes to these folks. And this is what I believe he was talking about would take place in their lifetime. Verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, Jesus had been teaching in the temple there in Jerusalem. And for the Jews of that day, that was just absolutely the focal point. That was the house of God where God dwelt. And that's what it represented to them. Remember, though, what Jesus found when he went into the temple. He found that it had been turned into a, a den of robbers. He showed his absolute righteous anger because of the offense against his father as he cleansed the temple. In fact, the one positive thing that he talks about there in the temple. The one good thing that he saw was the little widow who gave her offering, who gave her all. He saw a heart there in the temple. That was the one good thing that was there. It was not about this building. And yet, it must have been an impressive building. Josephus uh, was a historian, and I will just tell you that he was known, um, or is known at least, to have exaggerated sometimes, okay? Uh, and yet, we do rely on him a great deal about things that uh, took place in history of that day. But he said some of the stones in the foundation were, and rather than give you the dimensions, I've, I figured this out yesterday, if you go to the end of the platform and you go over to this first chair here, that would be the length. 
the height would be from the floor down there to maybe up to here. And the depth would be from here back to the front row of the choir. He said some of the stones were a million pounds. Incredible. So you can see why when they walked out, they said, what an impressive building, this massive building that we stand before, dedicated to God. So picture that, and then Jesus says, verse 2, Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now put yourself in the place of the disciples. What would you think at that point? You can imagine that they were thinking he was talking about, okay, well, that's the end of the world. When these stones, when these, there's not one left upon another, that's got to be the end of the world that he's talking about. What they didn't know was that in about 40 years, in 70 A.D., It would be destroyed when the Roman general Titus marched through Jerusalem and destroyed it. Now, the disciples couldn't know that. Now, they cross over the the valley from the side where the temple is. It's called the Kidron Valley. And they crossed over to the other side, and then they looked back at the temple and got the full view of it. Verse 3 As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now again, remember, they're thinking he's talking about the end of time. Jesus then tells them some of what they are in for or at least those who would be in Jerusalem at that time, are in for. Beginning with verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now he starts out by emphasizing the big picture of things that will be going on. He warns them not to get caught up in deception that will be taking place. There will be charlatans. There will be people that will uh, say they are the Christ or that they have the truth. And he said, watch out for that. And then he gets into some specific instruction. Verse 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On, On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. That's so much like that last verse uh, of the hymn that we sang at the end. So, Spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle. Isn't that it? That's what he's talking about. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and father his, chi- father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing uh, where it, or he, could be translated either way, does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now that abomination that causes desolation. Uh, Some think that was Caligula, who was an emperor, who uh, brought a statue of himself into the temple and told them that it must be worshipped, that statue of him must be worshipped as if he were God. Some feel that was the abomination that causes desolation. Some think it was the Roman general Titus that I told you about that led in the destruction of Jerusalem. Some think it's in the future that this is talking about the man of lawlessness uh, we see in Thessalonians, for instance, the Antichrist. I would say, in one sense, it doesn't really matter who it is. The point's the application. It's very practical. Notice, Jesus tells them to flee when that happens. Now, that's a practical application. You know, if you're here and persecution comes, split the scene. You know, leave. Now, why is that important? Well, God used that in spreading the gospel for one thing. But the other thing is this. He is saying, there's no reason to defend this temple, this city, need to die here for any reason, leave and spread the gospel. Because we don't need to look at this as the house of God. God is not going to be destroyed if this temple is destroyed. And Jesus is making it clear. Verse 15, let no one on the roof of the house, go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it'll be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs 
and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Now Jesus speaks to all of these things, and you know, again, the nat- naturally the disciples are thinking it's the end. And that brings us to where I believe the transition is when he begins to talk about the end. Then, if you're following the outline, Jesus will return. Verse 24. Now, by the way, commentators, again, they disagree on whether verses 24 through 27 refer to the events in 70 A.D. or the end of the age. But what we do know is that at this point, and this is why I think now he's talking about when Jesus comes back, he is using language of the Old Testament that refers to Jesus' second coming. It's prophecy in the Old Testament that's talking about the the second coming. Uh, From Isaiah, verse 24, (coughs) he says, But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Quote from Isaiah. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. (coughs) Now, one of the applications, and... uh, is I am convinced this. Be careful about interpreting the end times by reading the daily newspaper, by watching the news. These guys, these disciples, looked at what he was talking about, and said, well, this he must be talking about the end times. And we see that every time a natural disaster happens, we get predictions. When there's trouble in the Middle East, which has been the case at least all of my life, and has been the case down through history, there's always trouble in the Middle East. But whenever there's new trouble, we will see... Bible prophecy experts writing books or uh, preaching on TV and talking about Gog and Magog and how, you know, if you take these letters and this is Saddam Hussein and, you know, he is the Antichrist and, and things like that. And some of you remember these, these things coming in cycles. Number said Saddam Hussein was predicted in the Bible. In World War II, Hitler. World War I, 
Kaiser Wilhelm. Civil War. Well, we won't go back to the Civil War. Depends on which side you are on, doesn't it? And that's the very point, isn't it? People read into it, and they're reading their daily newspaper, seeing what's in the news, and they're saying, okay, this is, this is what it's talking about. It's any moment now, and we've got to be cautious of that. Although we will say one of these times, these signs will be the real signs. We see so much here about persecution in the previous verses. And we may say, well, you know, the persecution isn't that great here in the United States. Yeah, we have a few problems here and there, but it's mostly verbal. And it's, you know, it's, that's not what he's talking about here. I had a professor when I was in seminary who wrote a, a book about his view. And I, I told you all the tribulation views, you know, mid, post, and uh, pre-tribulation. Well, he, he had another one, uh, another view, and his view was, Potential past tribulation. And by the way, I, I, I kind of go toward that one. But here's why. Here's what he said. Jesus could come any time because these things are happening all over the world. We are rather isolated here, not being persecuted. But he said there are parts of the world that if you read these verses, they would say that's happening to us and to our family right now. I said potentially at any point we could be. Here's the point. Jesus could come any time. And that brings us to the application. I want us to see three more from this passage and then all of next week will be further application on the very last section there, verse 32 through 37. And that's what's going to take place always. Uh, In the New Testament, and here's one of the things we've got to know, is that whenever the end times are talked about in the New Testament, they're never just talked about saying, look, here's some very interesting facts that you can share or you can win a trivia contest with. It's never that way. It's this. Jesus is coming, therefore, blank. He's coming, therefore, work. Therefore, in other words, there's always an ethical application when he talks about the second coming of Christ. That's why I'm convinced that's what he wants us to focus on knowing that somehow at some point, maybe any time, Jesus is coming. So what's that mean to me today? Not to sit and twiddle my thumbs, as some have interpreted and done it in history, but here he gives several applications. The first one, verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Take the gospel to the world. You see, he doesn't say Jesus is coming, so sit back and wait for that great day. He says Jesus is coming. There's an urgency. And that's why we at St. Andrews believe global missions is to be a priority 
because Jesus said it is. Jesus is coming, therefore keep fulfilling the Great Commission. That's the application. We are close to, in the church year, Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter, when we focus on the sharing of the gospel to all nations. How appropriate this is. Don't stop seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. Secondly, take comfort in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is coming Look, all these these difficult things are going to happen in your lives, and some of them may be happening in your lives now, but, verse 11, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever's given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Here Jesus is saying, look, whatever you're going to go through during those times, Yeah, there may be some hard things. Whatever you're going to go through in this life, yes, there will be hard things. But I'll never leave you or forsake you. My precious spirit dwells within you. It's an application. And then thirdly, know that God's word will stand. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Wow. How precious is that Bible that's sitting in your lap? I hope it's sitting in your lap. It better be. That's the one thing. Everything else around us is going to pass away, but not his words because the words on the page are super special. They're special because of who gave us those words. And so his faithfulness will never pass away. I've always had a a great admiration for those who run marathons. There was a time years back when I was running 10Ks and uh, sometimes longer races and I was always so impressed because I I never could get to the point of even beginning to do the training. But I I read articles and so on and magazines I would take about the marathon. And they talked about how to do the training. And and one of the things generally they would say is, is do one long run a week, work up to where it's 20 miles. Now, a marathon's 26 miles and a little bit more, just a few hundred yards beyond that. But it says, you know, physically if you can do uh, 20 miles, you'll, you can do 26. But every marathoner will tell you it's those last six miles. And they talk about the wall. Because those last six miles, most of them haven't ever gone beyond the 20 miles, so they're in new territory. They don't know if they will cramp up or if they will, uh, uh, you know, just completely run out of gas or if mentally they can just keep their legs and arms moving. They don't know. It's no man's land. They know it's going to be hard. 
I know some things that could happen, but all they can do is train for it and try to be able to get through those last six miles across that glorious finish line. I think this passage is getting us ready for the last six miles. Saying, look, you know, here's some things that are going to happen to various people or various places, and it's going to be hard. But here's what will get you through it. Here's how you can prepare, absolutely. And if you do this, you will stand. Next week, we'll look at the final application of how to prepare. Those miles are going to be hard. They're unknown, but they're worth it. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your words to us, words that will live forever. Your word cannot be broken. It's precious to us. We give you all praise in Jesus' name.